Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Mary Catherine Hamm and Guy Benson, co-authors of the new book, End of Discussion, How the Left's Outrage Industry Shuts Down Debate, Manipulates Voters, and Makes America Less Free and Fun. Mary Catherine is a contributing editor to HotAir.com, and Guy is political editor at TownHall.com, and you've probably seen both of them on Fox News. Mary Catherine and Guy, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. Great to be here. So let's start out on a positive note. The name of this book is End of Discussion, and you chronicle all of the ways that free speech is under attack. So are we entering a joyless era devoid of all discourse and humor in America? <laughs> yeah, that is a very chipper note to begin with. <laughs> um, hopefully not, which is why we wrote End of Discussion the way we did. This is a very serious societal problem that we're sensing in America, which is where the left primarily, not entirely, is trying to win political and cultural fights and debates by preventing that debate really from taking place in the first place, right? They, they're trying to disqualify and delegitimize the opposition through bullying, through phony outrage, through the use of certain taboo words that you don't want to be associated with, sexism, racism, that kind of thing. So obviously it's a serious matter that is squelching free expression in this country. But we felt like if we tried to write a book about outrage, that in and of itself was also outraged in tone, that wouldn't fly necessarily. It would, it would be self-defeating. So we wanted to approach the topic with a lighter touch in a fun way, sometimes funny, a little bit snarky from time to time, that is inviting, of course, to conservatives who are going to agree with us, but to open-minded people on the center and on the left who we really need to join with us to overcome this problem. So that's sort of why we, we didn't want this to be a joyless slog. We wanted end of discussion to make an important point in a way that is accessible to a pretty wide audience. And I will say just for our listeners that this is the only book that I've ever seen where you have the names Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Cal Ripken Jr. in the same sentence. So you, you, you do proud. deal with We're it. <laughs> you do deal with it in, in a lighthearted way. And it, it's a very serious topic. And one of the things that I was pondering when I was going through the book was how did we get to a time in America where there are quote-unquote speech enforcers, maybe not quote-unquote speech enforcers? I mean, they really exist. There's something very totalitarian, almost Sovietish about that. You know, it's un-American. Yeah, there, there definitely is that feel about it, which is why we ended up deciding to write in the discussion. We were like, this is pretty scary what's going on here. And I think there has been an evolution because some people will say, well, political correctness is sort of like, you know, that was the 90s, right? This is a different animal, and it is more totalitarian, um, partly because it's not just, ew, you should feel bad for saying that. It is, hey, uh, private citizen, you have uttered an inappropriate thought on your Facebook or Twitter page, and you, therefore, shall lose your livelihood. And there are organized groups of people who will come after you and sort of grind your life into dust uh, should you have the wrong thought and express it in the wrong way. And we, in the book and in the discussion, we go, we talk to public figures who face this, uh, from Governor Scott Walker to Adam Carolla, but we also find some of these private citizens who got caught up in one of these outrage storms and talk about, like, the real damage that can do. And I think many Americans feel uh, this language policing and don't really know what to do about it. 
uh, and we wanted to draw attention to it and say, hey, maybe there's a way we can all chill out here. <laughs> and, and I think what we would also say is political correctness has been around for decades, which is Mary Catherine's point, and it's now at a point where it is political correctness weaponized mm -hmm. and used to punish people. And as Mary Catherine suggested, it's not just public figures. It is seeping into all corners of American life, creating a less free and a less fun country where sort of everyone's kind of walking on eggshells or looking over their shoulder and wondering if they can express what they want to express. And, and the last point I'm going to make in response to your question, you used the word totalitarian, when you confront certain members of the outrage circus, is what we call them, they, some of them, not all of them, and you say, hey, you're shutting down my speech or you're shutting down free expression, some of them will just embrace it and say, yeah, your offensive existence deserves to be shut down. Your viewpoint should be stamped out ruthlessly. Is actually a quote uh, from the book and a gay rights activist saying that people who don't agree with him on gay rights, those views should be stamped out ruthlessly. His words. So they, they sort of embrace this silencing endeavor and this mission. For all of our own good. Guys. Right, exactly. And so <laughs> we're trying to appeal to people. Those are illiberal leftists. We are trying to appeal in this book, of course, to conservatives, but also free-thinking, true liberals in the classic sense, or even the recent sense of what <laughs> liberalism supposedly stood for, open-mindedness, coexistence, tolerance, and free expression, which seem to be increasingly vanishing on the left. Yeah, and even, I mean, even the definition of liberal has been completely turned on its head, like so many other notions in the last 50 years. And I wanted to ask, since you touched on political correctness existing for decades, but being sort of a 1990s phenomenon, and that was sort of what Jonathan Chait was talking about in his article about how political correctness had gone too far. And there's a, there have been a number of recent articles. There was a professor at Vox talking about how horrified they were of their leftist students. And Laura Kipnis, a professor at Northwestern, is be, being attacked by feminists on Title IX. Do you think that we're hitting a point where the left are starting to eat their own, that we've hit a tipping point, and there's some realization that liberal, liberalism is illiberal at this point? I think it's really important that mainstream journalists uh, and folks at these important publications who really move opinion are noticing the end of discussion, and they notice it principally on college campuses. There's a reason for that, because that's where it is birthed. That's the craziest part, and then they sort of export it to the rest of the country. Um, but I thought campuses so, were for open debate and, and discourse. <laughs> right. Oh, you silly, silly man. Don't you understand open debate means never hearing anything uncomfortable ever? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, they really, colleges have frighteningly become the opposite of what they are supposed to be. And if you'll remember, uh, my favorite part about the Jonathan Chait piece is a liberal in good standing by any definition. And we quote him and the piece in End of Discussion. His, the response to that from the left, particularly the, the activist liberals, was, uh, excuse me, Jonathan Chait, aren't you a white man? <laughs> I think we've heard enough from you. End of discussion. I mean, that is the, there's no engagement with the ideas. It is literally your identity disqualifies you from discussing this in public. Hush now. And a recent example of this on the left, when you're talking about this uh, self-eating phenomenon, where they're starting <laughs> to really kind of go after each other, 
there was the fight on Capitol Hill just a few weeks ago on trade policy where President Obama was going toe-to-toe with congressional Democrats led by Elizabeth Warren, and he was disagreeing with Elizabeth Warren on the trade bill. He was mansplaining. Bill. He was mansplaining. That's right. He, that's the thing. Exactly. He referred to her as Liz at one point, or Elizabeth, as opposed to Senator Warren, and several sitting Democratic senators accused President Obama of sexism. And for, they've forgotten how to argue even amongst themselves. I don't know why Senator Warren, Elizabeth, is so racist as to oppose the president in the first place. Did Liz Warren not notice he's our first black president? (laughs) And to oppose him on anything is probably a sign that you're pretty racist. Like, these are the rules that they've constructed. These are the, the, the manner, this is the manner in which they all too often debate to try to disqualify and shunt conservatives off to the side. And here they are in some fisticuffs amongst themselves, and they are so accustomed now to arguing this way that they're turning these insane identity politics discussion ending knives against each other and i'll admit to a bit of schadenfreude watching it and and hoping that there's some self-correction like some realization going on oh wait but i won't hold my breath I think it also bears noting that the president was not called out for his anti-Native American sentiments in going after Liz Warren. That is a good point. And as we, although in end of discussion, we have a really fun, very short portion of a chapter that deals with this whole nomenclature on college campuses of trigger warnings and privilege. And there's a whole list of them. Microaggressions is a big one. And towards the end of this chapter on academia, we examine the very interesting case of Elizabeth Warren, who is a white woman. That is, the the science is in, and she is a white woman. Yet for years, she identified, self-identified wrongly based on family folklore that she was a Native American. And she benefited tremendously on her career trajectory by checking the box to say, I am a very small, sought-after minority, and finally stopped self-identifying as a Native American once she had tenure at Harvard Law School at the peak of her career. And we're like, whoa, the privilege checking community is so obsessed with checking your privilege. This is a woman who invented a privilege, right? (laughs) Invented a privilege set aside for minorities who do not enjoy her alleged white privilege. Right, exactly. It's all privilege. (laughs) It's like, it should be a high crime to these people, like the highest of thought crimes. But because she's on their side and scratches their belly the way they want to be scratched ideologically, they're willing to set that aside and instead drop the hammer on conservatives with all this privilege nonsense uh, because it serves their partisan and ideological ends, which is another central element of end of discussion. By the way, according to to the uh, Senator Warren rubric, I am Native American commentator Mary Catherine Hamm. And why is that? We have the exact same amount of uh, Native American heritage, <laughs> which is not any documented Zero. American heritage. Zero. Yeah. You should put that on every job application from here on in. <laughs> well, I, I think Native American author, Mary Catherine Hamm. <laughs> buy the book or you hate these these tribes. It's it's worse than the Washington Redskins. But but the problem is, like you the key point that you touched on, Guy, is that it doesn't really matter ultimately in the end what your identity is if you have the wrong beliefs. So her CLE, for example, 
in my view, is the perfect, if you were to take every single trait that has nothing to do with what she believes in her heart, she should be held up as the most beloved figure by the left of them all. We're talking a woman immigrant who's a religious, an apostate from a religion. She speaks her Mm -hmm. mind freely. She's willing to take on everyone. She was a Muslim, no longer, and maybe that's part of the issue. But what it comes down to, in effect, is that— You forgot forgot a couple. She's also dark-skinned, and she also is an atheist. So, like, she is the perfect, like, like laboratory-pure identity politics archetype, and yet— she thinks things that she ought not think, and therefore she is banned from college campuses. And, and that, and so that gets to the point of if all that really matters in the end is if you're on the left or you're not on the left, do you think that they are going to hit a point where they realize that they've taken things too far? Or I guess stated differently, what is the left's incentive for actually opening up debate again when it's been so effective for them up to this point? Yeah, so I think liberal activists are not incentivized to open up debate. Their whole game is to shut it down. That's why we wrote end of discussion. But outside of the activist community, there are plenty of moderates and plenty of liberals in good standing who still believe that crazy old idea about free speech and free expression. And I do think that, uh, and one of the reasons we talk about in in end of discussion about making America less fun is because that's an important emotional point to reach out to people on. When these language police and these uh, these adjudicants of everything come down on us and say, you can't watch this movie and you can't listen to this comedian and you certainly can't listen to that radio program, uh, that is limiting American scope of choices and limiting their ability to have fun and to live rich and fulfilling lives. And if there's one thing Americans like, it is to have the things they like in abundance and have great choices. And so, despite what Bernie Sanders thinks about deodorant. Um, so I think that's where you, you touch people and you say, look, especially young people, you used to be able to have Jerry Seinfeld or Chris Rock on your campus. Now you can't because you have created an environment in which they refuse to come to college campuses because you are so quick to tell them they're evil because of the joke they told. They're just not willing to do it. So I think when you start removing fun from normal people, not liberal activists, because those are two different categories, when you take fun away from normal people, they start to respond. I think that's where your hope is. And the one other, the one other thing I would add is, you know, the old phrase, uh, first they came for the fill in the blank and I said nothing for I was not in that group, dot, dot, dot. There are such sort of fluid and capricious and totally irrational rules that get erected around all of our language and what we're allowed to say and think, you might feel like you're safe at the moment, but the second the rules change or the winds shift a little bit (laughs) and all of a sudden you're on the wrong side of the fence on something, they will come after you sometimes just as hard. Now, they're, they're very good at issuing waivers to their own kind. Uh, we are, if you're a senator, though. Not necessarily if you're just a normal person. Right. We are not eligible for these waivers, but, but high-privileged uh, lefties are. But I think part of this learning process is, A, challenging them with their own professed values on open-mindedness, on tolerance, on coexistence, and then, B, citing examples where even lefties or people left of center in good standing are looking around and saying, this is getting crazy. How am I getting caught up in this? 
I think that's sort of the one-two punch that can, can, can land on the left and start to at least get them a bit anxious about being part of this outrage circuit. In, in the discussion, for instance, in the gay rights chapter, which is called Bake Me a Cake, Biggest, uh, we address, on two occasions, Dan Savage, famous sex columnist and certainly far-left liberal. Gay activist. Gay activist for years. And RuPaul, groundbreaking, cross-dressing cultural figure, have both been called out in the past several years as transphobic. Those two. So if they don't survive the refs, you ain't going to survive. I think a lot of normal people see that and go, ooh, how am I going to do this? Yeah, how, is, how can RuPaul be transphobic? I stand no chance. Maybe <laughs> I should just not talk about that issue, which is sort of the point. They're trying to shut people down or at least get them to not express themselves fully and freely and like in the spirit of free uh, inquiry and that sort of thing. And, and that's that's the spirit of what we're talking about when we when we write and discuss our book and a discussion. And doesn't shutting people down in effect show that there's a weakness or some underlying flaws in the left's ideas? In other words, can't we win on the basis of people who are right thinking, people who are conservative, libertarian, independent, etc., that we are kind of countercultural, so our thoughts are actually cooler than their thoughts? <laughs> I, I always hope that we'll arrive at that point. Uh, I sort of take a, a hip to be square kind of a, <laughs> kind of approach to this. Like, sure, maybe not everybody's going to think I'm cool. Um, but look, I just think the way that we have, one of the things we talk about in the discussion is about how this just doesn't allow for you to live a fun life. Like, if you're, if you're dressing everything up in politics, if you're taking every choice and turning it into a political rubric. Uh, one of the things we talk about is how uh, this outrage industry is turning your life into a political campaign. We end up having to vet ourselves. We end up having to, you know, run our public statements for Facebook by, uh, by some, you know, consultants yeah. to make sure they, they pass muster. Living like a political campaign is a, is a horrible idea, but it's what we're imposing on ourselves by allowing these guys to be in charge. When I look at some of the examples in the book, uh, they'll, they'll make readers' heads spin when they read them, some of which they'll be familiar with, some not. One of the examples of the double standard that I thought was really powerful and compelling was the comparison between Justice Sonia Sotomayor and how she was treated and Miguel Estrada when he was up for a federal judge position. So lay that out a bit for us. Yeah, so... If people are listening right now and they are not hardcore politicos, they'll say, okay, Sonia Sotomayor, Supreme Court Justice, uh, Miguel who? And the reason that people don't know who Miguel Estrada is is because he's a, a lawyer in private practice living a pretty anonymous life these days. We tried to actually talk to him for the book, and we got in touch with him, and he declined to comment. He was one of President Bush's appointees to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, a sort of thought of as the second highest court in the land often a place where Supreme Court justices in waiting... Launching pads right, to the Supreme Court. Exactly. So Bush uh, appointed Miguel Estrada, or nominated him. He was from Honduras. He was raised by a single parent, came to this country as an immigrant, didn't speak English, and eventually graduated from two Ivy League institutions with honors, became uh, an assistant, I believe, solicitor general, this glittering resume, 
And when Bush nominated him, the Democrats decided we are going to filibuster him. They filibustered him for two years. And there were memos that came out in the media that showed that the Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats, Ted Kennedy and others, Dick Durbin, had written memos saying that they were targeting him because he was Latino, which they said was, quote, particularly dangerous. So it was explicitly an identity race-based campaign of filibuster against him. That's just racism. Yes. Straight up. Like two years, and he eventually withdrew his name and moved on into private practice and, and never looked back. He was denied a major judgeship for which he was overwhelmingly qualified. But a few years later, President Obama appoints the wise Latina, and we have all the media coverage and all the Democrats that look at this wonderful woman. And by the way, her resume was extremely similar to Miguel Estrada, grew up speaking Spanish in a single-parent household, worked really hard and became an extraordinary student, multiple Ivy League degrees, etc. They were very similar in a lot of ways on paper. She was overwhelmingly confirmed to the Supreme Court. He is a private sector attorney because literally because he was a Latino who thought the wrong things. For the sin of being Latino and right of center. Yeah. Well, he wasn't a wise Latino woman, and that's that's really what it comes down to. He didn't have the <laughs> empathy. He wiser. Right. <laughs> and, and also, I mean, we could take it back also to Clarence Thomas and Bork, the treatment of them versus the treatment of Obama's uh, Supreme Court appointees. It's, it's not even comparable. Yeah, and I think, you know, some people point to those Supreme Court battles and sort of the the beginning of the devolution of <laughs> political back and forth in this country. And I think there's there's some truth to that. It's such a high stakes fight that the left really decided this is where we this is our hill to die on. Yeah, and the we, problem is now they die on every single hill. Right. Everything is a thing. That's exactly right. And I, we don't talk about it in the book, but the Ted Kennedy speech opposing Robert Bork is sort of infamous. <laughs> so demagogic, trying to say this person, forget his qualifications, forget his intellect, this is an evil person who believes evil things, we must block him, and Kennedy succeeded in doing that, and then they've taken sort of that type of outrage and demagoguery, uh, demagoguery, and they've used it, as Mary Catherine said, and expanded it to all facets of American life, where everything is a thing. Chick-fil-A is the new Bork. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And let's not forget that Uncle Joe Biden was heavily involved in both of those as well. He was. Judiciary Committee. Yes. So given the all of the sort of waves of outrage from the left pounding us down and also you, you, you rightfully point out issues of hypocrisy on the right or areas where the right isn't living up to its own values, something that I don't think those on the left would necessarily do unless they were intellectually honest, what can the average American do to sort of fight this? I mean... Charles Murray has a book out now sort of on civil disobedience. And so do you believe in sort of civil disobedience when it comes to speech? Well, I would say first thing, and then I'm going to toss it to Mary Catherine to get sort of to our conclusion and answer your question. I think the first thing for Americans to do is to understand what's happening. And that's a big part of why we end a discussion, not just to say like, oh, we're angry and this is frustrating and we need to fight it. You have to identify who is doing what. And so we really go through with some real reporting in depth and explain who the players are, how these seemingly organic national controversies are actually fueled by this very well-funded 
network of interest groups and media figures and the official Democratic Party. It's this, it's this whole group of people, this network. Um, and so we, I think that's step one, is recognizing that it is a manipulative exercise done to pull certain strings, bully, and silence. And so that's a major part of end of discussion. And then the question is, okay, if you, if you see it and you recognize it and there are certain telltale signs um, that you begin to pick up and say, okay, I know what's happening here, what's next? And that's what we try to address a little bit in our conclusion. Yeah, and in the conclusion of end of discussion, we, we talk about specifically what conservatives can do, what open-minded liberals can do, what moderates can do, and, and offer some advice without, by the way, uh, assuming we have all the answers. This is a very big cultural problem, and it requires a cultural shift. But uh, to conservatives, for one thing, we talk about the idea of whether there should be an arms race in outrage, whether we should try to match them outrage for outrage. I think that's a mistake for two reasons. One, I think we'll lose because we do not have the same giant media, academia, and entertainment amplification uh, devices that they have at their disposal. Uh, and two, because it sounds terrible. Uh, we should pick our battles, call them on their stuff when they deserve it, uh, but not become obsessed with being offended by everything they ever do and sort of ginning up our own fake outrage. The other thing is, this, and I won't give away all of it, but the idea that as a society, we shouldn't cave so easily to small groups of people making a large amount of noise. Um, we have lost the ability to just say, your concerns are noted. Like, <laughs> sometimes that's all you have to say. It doesn't have to be uh, a groveling apology, and you should not apologize if you didn't indeed do anything wrong. Right. If you did, by all means, apologize, and apologize sincerely. But um, one of my... Uh, heroes of late and uh, the just recently passed Joan Rivers, we certainly had a, I would never be quite as pointed and mean as Joan Rivers in public, um, but I enjoyed her Only comedy. And I thought, yeah, well, <laughs> obviously with Guy, when we were writing together, I really had to come down on him. Um, <laughs> but she was genuinely unapologetic and genuinely brave. She would say stuff that made people mad, and when they came back to her, here's the trick. They'd say, Joe, we're very mad at you about this joke. And she would say, I don't care. I'm a comedian. And then the outrage industry was confused about what to do next. The story stopped in its tracks because she refused to apologize for something she didn't need to apologize for. And I think I don't endorse uh, you know, being a jerk for the sake of being a jerk, but a lot of times we could take a page from Joan Rivers and just say, look, this is life. Put your big boy pants on and deal with it. Yeah, and you read or big girl, depending on whatever. Yeah, that was a microaggression. Yeah, <laughs> um, and you'll read some of her quotes, and we do quote Joan Rivers. We have a whole chapter on comedy, the Uptight Citizens Brigade, and you read these quotes from her, and you're like, "That is my spirit animal right yeah. there." Thank you, Joan Rivers. <laughs> and the other thing that we do, last thing on the conclusion, we had a really cool opportunity to have some exclusive interviews, as we mentioned earlier, for the book, and two of the guys we spoke with were Governor Scott Walker and now Senator Cory Gardner, who were really uh, treated, if we want to put it that way, or subjected to a big tornado of outrage from the left who threw everything at them in their campaigns, from the serious to the silly, and they prevailed. So we wanted to go to people who have survived the outrage circus and thrived, frankly, in that environment and ask them, how did you do it? 
what, what specifically did you do? Give us examples and what advice do you have to fellow conservatives, be, that, be it politicians or what have you? And both of them, I think, have some really interesting and insightful things to share with us in the concluding chapter of End of Discussion. So the, the takeaway for Americans is study Joan Rivers and Scott Walker, and that's how we'll win. Pretty much. Walker Rivers, 2016. <laughs> <laughs> the, the name of the book is End of Discussion, How the Left's Outrage Industry Shuts Down Debate, Manipulates Voters, and Makes America Less Free and Fun. And we've been speaking with its authors, Mary Catherine Hamm and Guy Benson. Mary Catherine and Guy, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Hey, it's our pleasure. And the book is out now, bookstores everywhere, and also online at endofdiscussion.com. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com slash books. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.